Okay, so I have a theory. I watch a lot of movies and I watch a lot of bad movies. A lot of people, you know, they're very pretentious, but a lot of people don't understand why I watch bad movies. And it's hard to explain to them because sometimes I watch bad movies because it's funny that they're bad. Sometimes I watch bad movies because I'm interested in the car crash that is the movie. So the single worst movie I've seen, if I was going to run like a class, a master class in how not to direct a film, it would be the Netflix movie, I think it's Underground 6, directed by Michael Bay and starring Ryan Reynolds. It does every single thing wrong that you can possibly do. And you can't blame it on budget. There's a lot of bad movies I watch and you can say the reason it's bad is actually the budget is too small. They didn't have the money to do the thing they were trying to do. Now, I have a belief that one of the first things the makers of a movie should do is sit down and go, how much money do we have? Uh, What can we do and what can we not do? And let's do the things we can do really well. And that will make a better movie overall. Blair Witch Project is a classic. It's the first run through a forest with a handicam movie. They knew they didn't have studios and cameras and stuff. They knew they had handicams and can we make a scary movie? And since no one had seen that before, because it's been done a million times since, but since no one's seen that before, they made a really good movie. Um, People were sick because of the motion on the screen and stuff. Uh, It was actually really scary. It was a good movie and done for very little money, comparatively speaking. Of course, that's not always the case. Now, I have a theory, and I've espoused this multiple times, but there was no way to really prove it. And my theory was that horror movies that go to space do not make good movies. Not even just like they don't have the money good movies, like they're not good movies. A horror movie that starts in space, let's say Alien, is fine because the space is part of the context of the film. It's the setting. Uh, Really, the interesting thing about Alien movies and space movies is they're just actually super advanced submarine movies uh, with no water. Space is more exciting than water, if I'm being honest. So uh, if you're actually right now writing a submarine movie, you actually probably would do better if you made it into a space movie. If you have the budget to make a good spaceship, because that's something that's actually going to come up when I start talking about this seriously, is if you're in space, you need a good spaceship. And the one thing they always skimp on is the spaceship. And I think that might be one of the problems. There are four franchises that I know of. Well, there's actually three franchises in one sort of thematic film. The Leprechaun series, they went to space. And they went to space in the fourth film. Hellraiser, Bloodlines, went to space. In my head, it was the sixth film. But when I went on Wikipedia, it actually turned out to be, I think, the fourth. Maybe even the third. So they went to space pretty quickly. Jason X, which is the 10th Friday the 13th movie, is the one where they went to space. Now, there's actually also Dracula 3000. When I started recording this, I wasn't able to get a copy. But I'm still trying to get a copy. So if I can... I'm going to actually talk about that film as well. But if I couldn't get a copy while I was looking for the other ones, probably won't be able to get a copy of it now. I know it has Coolio in it, and it has a Casper Van Dien in it. The captain's last name just happens to be the same name as uh, the famous vampire hunter Van Helsing, which is already a dead giveaway. Uh, If I remember correctly, this is not a spoiler because we're actually going off a foggy memory. I think the irony of that film is that Helsing actually gets turned into a vampire at the end. Uh, Then they crash into the sun. I don't really remember. Uh, I'm at the end. If I can't find the movie, I'll do the Wikipedia for you. The first question I have to ask is why did they go to space? Uh, Is it because they ran out of ideas? If the answer is yes, then you've made a bad movie because that means the mythology you're working with isn't robust enough to make another film. Putting it in space doesn't actually help. Uh, does a different setting improve the film? So I think it was the second, maybe even third Friday the 13th movie where Jason goes to Manhattan. So it's uh, Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees goes to the city. And that change of setting made it kind of more interesting because it wasn't just the same film uh, in the campground anymore. The next question is, does this need to be a movie in this franchise? Would it work just as well independently Does it build on the previous films? Does it actually work with the mythology? Stuff like that. Is the franchise improved by this new direction? So the first movie I'm going to talk about is Hellraiser, Bloodlines. And Hellraiser, this is ironic because of the movies I'm talking about, Hellraiser 
Bloodlines is actually the best film. And it was the one that made me come up with this theory. Uh, but it seems like my memory of it is far, far harsher than it should be because it is head and shoulders better than the other movies I've mentioned already. Hellraiser as a series, as a franchise, is conceptually one of my favorite films. And yet, they basically haven't made a good movie. The first one was about a guy who escaped from hell, uh, and then he got a girl who was in love with him to kill people, and then the blood from their bodies kind of helped him rebuild a new body, and then when he came back and he was full, uh, like a human being again, then the Cenobites, the guys from hell, came and brought him back. That's a summary of the first film. It's quite a good idea. It's really neat, and there's a lot of stuff going on there, and I think the fact that they don't show you much is actually what makes that work. Because like a lot of monster movies, if you see the monster too much or for too long, it actually becomes less scary. It's almost like every Hellraiser movie has a good movie in the background. The second movie has, the only thing I remember, it has the girl from Deep Space Nine, I think Terry Farrell, who I had a big crush on. And there is a guy who's her cameraman, because she's a reporter, and when he gets taken by the Cenobites, they like mush his camera into his head, so his eye is like a lens. I believe they stuff billiard balls into a guy's mouth so that he has to walk around with three billiard balls in his mouth, which is not quite as terrifying as it sounds. And then we get to Bloodlines, which is in space. So actually, the structure of the film itself, it makes perfect sense that it's in space. Because what they're actually doing is finding the origin of the box, which goes back to sort of the 17th century. Uh, this toy maker is commissioned to make the box. And he's making it for this like guy who's trying to conjure demons. The demons then go to modern 1980s times and find an offspring of the guy who's making a building. And he has sort of the same thematical aspects as the toy maker. And then the third section is the final offspring, I guess, of the toy maker who tries to make a thing to trap all the Cenobites in this prison in space. So thematically, it works. And bringing it to space, again, if we're going to ask, why did they go to space? My first question, it actually is perfectly reasonable because that's not the main premise of the film. They're just talking about three different time periods. It is a way better film than I remember. But when the initial credits came up, it was directed by Alan Smithy. Now, if you are not sort of imbued in movie lore, when a director doesn't want his name connected to a movie that he's made, he takes his name off and they put the name Alan Smithy in its place. So you could look up movies directed by Alan Smithy and you'd actually find a whole lot of them, like hundreds over decades and decades and decades. Because every time a creator, a director is unhappy with his product, he takes his name off and they put this placeholder instead. So you know the director walked away from this film. So he's the one who thought it was bad. And I remember it as being bad. And then when I watched it, I actually quite enjoyed it. This movie also has more budget and way, way more story than the other movies I mentioned earlier. The structure makes sense. The plot makes sense. Sure, CG had a long way to go, but because it was made in the 80s, that's completely forgivable. They were using the stuff they had available at the time. Uh, and they did do it to good effect. The practical effects, they have this uh, android who's actually the one opening the box. He is really appealing because right before he opens the box, he realizes he's going to explode. I don't know. And he makes a little mm, sound, which I really enjoyed. And then he blows up. And I felt sad for the, the robot, even though uh, I'm sure the robot didn't feel sad at all. He just mm, had finished his task. So it seems that opening gateways to hell is sort of a genetic trait. And that was interesting in itself. So the toy maker and his ability to open and close the portal to hell by making these products, these things, seem to be passed on genetically to through his bloodline. So that was already weird. But Hellraiser plays with a lot of things. And when you're talking about demons, and it's called bloodlines, uh, that sort of thing plays into that mythology very well. So like the son of the person who's been cursed, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's pretty common. I'm willing to accept it. The one problem they've actually created is at the end of this film, the Cenobites are actually doing a spoiler. The Cenobites are defeated and they are trapped in the sort of space jail that the toy maker has made for them, which means basically every film that followed in the franchise, there are many, many more films in the franchise. We know that at the end of the day, 
they're going to lose, which I realize takes away a certain amount of tension. There was something else. I watched some Umbrella Academy. I haven't finished it, but in the first episode, or the second episode, they show the end of the world, and they show all the people from the Umbrella Academy dead in the rubble. That took away a lot of tension for me, because I know they survived the series until the apocalypse. So doesn't matter how bad the situation they're in is, I know they're going to survive at least until the apocalypse. So they actually made a mistake by showing all the characters there. They should have showed maybe one or two. But that would have left a big question mark. Does everyone survive the end of the series? I know right now the answer is yes, they do. We know that in the future, the door gets closed and Pinhead gets defeated. And after that, I assume everyone is happy forever because there's actually kind of no more hell anymore. Uh, And that's the end of the franchise. So in a weird way, by being successful, they killed this franchise. The films that also follow. And I just realized it was the names that got me. It was Hellraiser Inferno, Hellraiser Hellseeker, Hellraiser Debtor, which was a pretty bad name, Hellraiser Hellworld. Hellraiser Debtor and Hellworld were filmed in the same year. And I believe those were the movies filmed over essentially the same weekend in a castle. And they are about as bad as movies can get because they're almost incoherent at times. There's Hellraiser Revelations and Hellraiser Judgment. Hellraiser Judgment is interesting in that it demonstrates that hell is actually has a bureaucracy. Uh, Pinhead comes and he essentially talks to or negotiates with this guy from this other hell, uh, the judge. And I don't know if he judges whether you go to hell or not, or he judges whether or not, you know, which hell you go to. But it seemed like suddenly they'd introduced bureaucrats, which doesn't seem very hell-like to me. Uh, hell would seem like a more efficient system, if I'm being really honest. So to answer the questions, why did they go to space? It was perfectly logical because they were doing an old, present, and future timeline. Was it budgetary? No. They actually had enough money. Most of the stuff looks pretty good. Did it serve the franchise? Not really. Uh, it wasn't as bad a movie as I remember, which is weird because it is, again, as I said, the one that kicked off this concept for me at the beginning. So then we have another movie, uh, Friday the 13th, the franchise. is very long-lasting because the one we're talking about is the 10th movie in the franchise. So you know there's going to be some lapses in quality over 10 films. I watched the first part of the movie and I had to stop. I had to go do something else. And I realized when I came back to the movie, the first part of the film does nothing to actually give you a sense of what the plot is supposed to be or what's going on. So we open on the Crystal Lake Research Facility in whatever modern times it was supposed to be. So like 2000 or something like that. The Crystal Lake Research Facility apparently is an empty garage. And here's the things that stuck to me. So they have Jason Voorhees tied up in the middle of a room. And the room's huge. It's like, again, I think it's like an empty parking lot, basically. So that's not anything resembling a research facility, first of all. And then I noticed that the floor was wet. So when they were walking around, there was like little splashes and stuff. And okay, uh, it's, all, it's a research facility. It's clearly not very well taken care of is that if it has water damage. So you can see I'm already getting super critical. They haven't shown us much of anything. So I can't make a lot of judgments. But here's the thing. You go to the Wikipedia where they talk about the plot of Jason 10. And it says in 2008, mass murderer Jason Voorhees is captured by the United States government and held at Crystal Lake Research Facility for research. After numerous failed attempts to kill Jason over the following two years, government scientist Rowan LaFontaine suggests putting him in cryogenic stasis. Dr. Wimmer and Sergeant Marcus arrive with soldiers, hoping to further research Jason's ability to heal from lethal wounds, believing it involves rapid cellular regeneration that can be replicated. However, Jason breaks free of his restraints and kills the soldiers in Wimmer. Everything I just read to you from the Wikipedia page, none of that's in the film. You start out with Jason, he's tied up. There's some sort of ominous camera movements. Some soldiers are shown walking down a hallway. The lady researcher, who at this point we're just assuming is a researcher because she's there, basically tries to stop them from whatever they're going to do. She says we should freeze him. They say we want to test him, basically. None of it's clear as to what's going on. There is no 
point they they don't point out that they've actually been researching them on them for two years. They don't point out that they've had him in this facility for two years. They don't demonstrate that they were torturing or testing him or anything else. They don't explain the cellular regeneration. They don't do any of that in the movie. So for you as the actual viewer, what you have is Jason's being held in a room. Some soldiers come and this lady's like, oh, don't take him away. And they're like, he's too valuable to put in, in you know, on ice. Uh, and then Jason breaks out and starts killing everybody. So I don't know if there was more scenes written that weren't in the film or if there was more plot that we didn't see. Maybe I got an edited version of the film, which is very possible. But already I was like, there is a lot more supposed to be happening here that's actually happening here. Now he gets frozen. He freezes the doctor as well by accident. Totally not how that would work, by the way. She would just freeze to death and die. I forget the year now. Uh, it's way, way in the future. <laughs> way, way in the future. And then they show some people sort of breaking into the facility. They're all wearing like hazmat suits and stuff. Uh, then they find the body of Jason. He's frozen. They find the girl. She's frozen. They take them back to their spaceship. Uh, this is essentially a salvage operation. These are supposed to be archaeologists or scientists. None of this is done in a very careful or caring way for the things they've just picked up. And apparently in the future, you can just unfreeze dead bodies. They do cut off a guy's arm and then have it like grow back. So they're talking with the sort of magic level of scientific technology now. Was moving Jason to space a good idea? And I think the answer is actually yes. Moving Jason to a new environment is a good idea. So I think it was the third movie maybe where they put him in the cities. Jason takes Manhattan. And that's good. So there's in a city, there's more tension, more people could possibly see him. The problem with a movie monster who has now become the star of your show is it often means you put him on camera too much. In Jason X, he literally is just wandering the hallways, killing everyone he runs into. There's no surprise. And the thing that I put in my notes over and over again as I was watching this film was there is no tension at all. This is the least scary, least amount of tension I've seen in a horror movie that I can remember. I do think they could have done a good job with this. This could have been Alien. But the problem is Jason, the character, isn't known for being stealthy, which is weird because he is. He always sneaks up behind the kids and stabs them from behind. He just appears out of nowhere. But he can't be like crawling around vents, so he's in hallways. This is the classic spaceship problem where I think they were trying to save money by making a spaceship two rooms in one hallway. And then if you move the camera around, it looks like a different hallway. This is, in the movie, one of the worst looking spaceships in, in all of science fiction. It just looks cheap. It looks thrown together. It's almost too bright. But if you remember back, Alien was bright, but they actually sort of, I don't know if it was like the camera or the film they used or something. It looked different when it was bright. This looks like fluorescent light bright. So Jason the monster walking around in fluorescent lights, not as scary, well, about as scary as it sounds, which is not very scary at all. There's a couple of things that stood out in this film. And this is, I know it was 400 years later, so it must be 2,400. They talk about, basically the, the scientist who found Jason needs money and he talks about selling him or as like a basically an oddity. And the guy he talks to remembers Jason Voorhees' name. Now I would like you to try to find someone who could remember the name of a mass murderer from 400 years ago. It's going to be rare. And this guy, like it's off the top of his head. So Jason is now like the most famous killer in all of history. If they did have him in a research facility for two years, maybe he is, but actually it doesn't make sense because there is an implication that if you're in a research facility that you are a secret and they don't want it to get out that there's this thing exists. So there's already, again, a logical problem with the fact that he's famous and secret at the same time. Something that happened in both this film and Hellraiser, which is, is clearly something I've just picked up from video games. The soldiers are moving around hallways using long barrel rifles. And in tight spaces, that actually means you wouldn't be able to turn 180 degrees without smacking your rifle against the wall. I actually learned that from swordplay in Dark Souls, but that's not important. It's a really good mechanic though. In Dark Souls, if you have a sword and you're in a hallway, the sword can hit the wall and it will, it will stop your swing, which the first time you realize it is always a really bad time, but it's a really cool mechanic and something you suddenly have to think about. If these guys are in spaceships, they should be using submachine guns so that they can turn around and, and sort of more mobility. Also, just like on an airplane, you have to be very careful that you're not using a high caliber round because you're in space, you put a hole in it somewhere, that's bad. So even to be honest, guns seem like a relatively bad idea. But it was weird that it was the long barreled rifles. I guess they look cool, 
But as soon as I saw him, I'm like, well, that's a bad idea for a spaceship. You shouldn't have that. Hellraiser did it too. Uh, when they first get on the spaceship where the guy's trying to build the trap for the Cenobites, they all point rifles in his face, which I guess does look cooler on film. But that was the moment I was like, well, you shouldn't be having, you shouldn't be carrying that right now. That doesn't make sense. Jason X, I guess you're not coming to a Friday the 13th movie for plot. This one doesn't have one. It's just a series of ideas and maybe jokes linked together by those single hallways in the spaceship. Uh, they're hiding from him. He gets to the room. They hide in a different room. Uh, he gets to another one. The soldiers go out and try to get him. He kills the soldiers. There was one death I remembered from when this movie first came out. So I saw this when it came out. I saw pretty much every movie as it came out because I'm a fan. He throws a soldier off a high level and the soldier lands on a giant, it looks like drill bit. The next scene after Jason walks away is the body slowly rotating in a circle as it spins down the drill bit, which was pretty cool to see. So that's probably the best effect in the whole movie. They do some CG and stuff, but again, CG at the time, it's really hard to measure. Some of it looks really good, but again, it's actually in comparison to the cheapness of like the panels and stuff right next to the CG, it makes it look actually out of place. So it's one of those things, if you're going to go for really high level CG, you have to have really high level environments for the CG to be in. If you have really cheap looking like panels and stuff, you actually should probably lower the quality of your CG so it matches. So here's the single note in my notebook that I think summarizes my whole feeling about Jason X. Cannot get over how basic it is. Everything like, so the plot structure, storytelling, uh, just film, everything about it is just incredibly basic. It's almost like there was very little thought put into it. And then when I started reading about it, it actually turns out maybe that's true because they wanted to make Freddy versus Jason but I think they had to maintain the rights. So they wanted to get another movie out. So they just kind of threw this one together really quickly. This one has more jokes in it than the other films. And the jokes are really bad. Like they're just poorly written. Every one of those jokes fails, except one. And there's a scene where they trap Jason on essentially a holodeck uh, and they recreate Crystal Lake. And they have these two, I guess, uh, hologram girls. And they say like, they, look, they, they meet Jason, he looks at them and they say, do you want to drink alcohol? Or do maybe, do you want to drink, we're underage, do you want to drink alcohol? Do you want to do illegal drugs? Do you want to have premarital sex? We love premarital sex. The next, and then they get into sleeping bags, like they're going to like snuggle up. The next scene is Jason with one sleeping bag, with the girl in it, beating the other sleeping bag, which was funny when I saw it. A single joke is not enough to carry a whole film. Like 90 minutes of your life for a two-minute visual gag, not really worth it. So like I say, everything fails. Did this improve the franchise? Was there a reason to go to space? There is an idea that putting Jason in different environments is a cool idea. It did not work. So they were not successful because they clearly needed a lot more money. They had a budget of $11 million and I cannot, I cannot really see where it went. They needed much, much more money or to use that money much more effectively. This comes at a time where I judged a lot of films on the immediate sounds I heard. So there's a very iconic soundtrack to the first film, Friday the 13th. And it's because it's not really music. It's like... Let's see if I can find that. So listen to this from the first film. So what you can see there is someone's put a lot of care into creating a soundscape. And we had not heard that before. And everyone's trying to figure out, what are they saying? Is it kill, 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 kill? And of course, that was the assumption. And maybe it's true. I actually never checked. But there's a creepy feeling. And that music, even if they're just using a piano, is got a feeling to it. Now, let's listen, of course, now to some music from Friday the 13th, Jason X. So that, what you've just heard, is the big reveal of Uber Jason. Uber Jason, what they've actually done is defeated him. Uh, they actually had a robot sort of kill him, shoot him up into little pieces. He landed on one of the medical bay beds, which relates to the earlier thing where they can repair limbs. The nanites, or whatever they're using in this movie, 
uh, repair him, and he comes back with a silver mask, and he's got a silver arm. Uh, that was the dramatic reveal, that music right there. This was a period where a lot of cheap films had what I just called the guy on a Casio. So they had one Casio and one dude who basically held down single keys for extended periods, and that was supposed to be tense music. This film has that, and as soon as I hear that, it's usually sort of uh, right after the opening credits, because maybe they'll put a song for the opening, but when they get into the actual film, you just hear like, and that's it for the whole film. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed that. That is something that if you would like a full ASMR album of me making uh, Casio sounds for a non-existent horror film, I can make that available to you for a small donation. It would actually probably do my throat in, so it actually have to be a bigger donation than that. But the music, the quality of the music demonstrates to me the level of quality of the whole film in this case. The original film was not an expensive affair, but they put a lot of effort into this detail that they knew would create tension in the audience. Jason X, they're like, for an extended period, and that's all you get. I found that this was all out of place, and again, the plot was not clear. It wasn't clear to me what was really going on. So I thought maybe I'd miss something. So I decided maybe I should go back and read the story for Friday the 13th Part 9, the previous film, because maybe they're connected. So as a special treat to you, I guess, let me read to you the Wikipedia summary of Friday the 13th, Jason Goes to Hell. So this is... Jason goes to hell the final Friday. So there's actually a sort of, there's actually a bit of an implication here. This is the last movie in the franchise. So after this, there's going to be no more Jason. A few years after meeting his demise in Manhattan, a resurrected Jason Voorhees returns to Camp Crystal Lake. We don't really know how he was resurrected. Whatever. We're just going to let that go because otherwise we wouldn't have a movie. Where he stalks a lone woman. However, the woman is soon revealed to be an undercover FBI I assume they're supposed to write agent there and lures Jason into an ambush where he is shot and obliterated by heavily armed FBI and SWAT agents. Jason remains are sent to a morgue where his still beating heart entices the coroner to eat it. So I stopped right there. He goes, I assume just bits of him go to the coroner's office and the guy eats it raw. So there's a lot more again going on here that the movie hasn't explained to us. This is allowing the killer's soul to possess him, the coroner. Jason, in the coroner's body, escapes the morgue, killing another coroner and two FBI guards in the process. So you can see what they've actually done here is there is no more actual physical entity, Jason Voorhees. They took the guy out of the movie. So then we get, this guy is not Jason Voorhees. Now, Jason Voorhees possessing the coroner. At Crystal Lake, Jason finds three partying teenagers and kills them before also murdering a police officer and possessing his partner. So now the spirit of Jason can jump from person to person. Uh, it's not 100% indicated as to how or why. Uh, that's something that maybe needed to be explained so that you could then follow where Jason was. Because The Thing, famous film for you not actually knowing who is the thing at any time, but there's hints in the movie. And then uh, as people talk about it, it sort of becomes clear, but then it's still, it's not explicit, but that's a good movie. This is one where they're kind of just gotten into like, let's do whatever we want and it'll be fine as long as it's, you know, something that no one can explain. Meanwhile, bounty hunter Creighton Duke discovers that only members of Jason's bloodline can truly kill him. Uh, there's no explanation of how that is discovered. At this point, I'm now tempted to go back and watch this movie knowing I'm going to hate it, but just to see if I can fill in the plot holes. Because as I said with Jason X, the Wikipedia sort of summary of the plot has a lot more details than are actually in the film. So I'm wondering if any of this is actually in the film. So only someone from his bloodline can kill him and he will return to his normal and near invincible state if he possesses a member of his family. The only living relatives of Jason are his half-sister, Diana Kimball, and her daughter, Jessica, and Stephanie, the infant daughter of Jessica and Stephen Freeman. Jason makes his way to Diana's house, where Stephen bursts in and attacks him. In the chaos, Diana is killed and Jason escapes. I think the people who wrote this are now switching between who's who, because like I'm actually 
already again confuses to who Jason is, which may be one of the problems with the film itself and this kind of plot structure. Stephen is accused of Diana's murder and arrested before meeting Duke, who reveals Jessica's relation to Jason. Determined to get Jessica before Jason does, Stephen escapes from jail. So it's convenient that that's possible. Uh, usually jails are quite difficult to escape from. Meanwhile, Jessica is dating tabloid TV reporter Robert Campbell. Stephen goes to the Voorhees house to find evidence to convince Jessica, but falls through rotten boards. It would be interesting to see what kind of evidence they're talking about. Like what physical thing would remain that would prove that an invincible killing machine can now possess bodies and jump from body to body. Apparently it will. Robert enters the upstairs room and receives a phone call in which he reveals that he is attempting to spice up his show, his show's ratings, by putting emphasis on Jason's return from death, having stolen Diana's body from the morgue for this reason. Jason bursts in and transfers his heart into Robert while the body he left melts. Again, needs a little bit of explanation as to hows and whys. Um, so it seems like the heart is the important bit. So the first guy ate the heart. Now he's, I guess, pulling out his own heart and sticking it in other people. Uh, you need to really sort of establish a rule set for how these transfers are possible, which would actually aid in the writing process. Not to be too critical, we haven't even hit the exciting bits yet. The body's melting is cool, though. Jason leaves with Stephen in pursuit and attempts to possess Jessica in order to be reborn, but is disrupted by Stephen, who hits him and takes Jessica to, into his car. Attempts to possess Jessica. So I think what they mean is like the heart has to go in uh, and then in her body, there will be a new baby made. Jason, throughout the whole series, is shown as being deficient mentally. He's physically amazing. He's got regenerative abilities. You can't kill him, but he's simple. He sees something that I believe his mom didn't like, so he kills that thing. So that's why like his penchant for killing people who are having premarital sex. His mother was anti-sex, that kind of stuff. Anyways, Stephen who hits and takes Jessica into his car. Stephen temporarily stalls Jason by running him over. When he tries to explain the situation to Jessica, she disbelieves him and throws him out of the car before going to the police station. It's a very, very sensible course of action there. Jason arrives at the police station and kills all officers in his path to Jessica whom he almost possesses before Stephen stops him again. The chaos allows Duke to escape from his cell, now believing Stephen. Jessica goes with him to the diner to retrieve Stephanie before Jason does. When Jason arrives, he is attacked by the shop's owners, whom he kills along with the waitress, Vicky Sanders, who manages to shoot him with a shotgun and impale him with an iron rod. Jessica and Stephen discover a note from Duke telling them that he has Stephanie and demanding that Jessica meet him in the Voorhees house alone. This is at this point a bit chaotic uh, and they should be working more towards how things work than they're actually doing. Jessica meets Duke is given a mystical dagger. So I think there might be missing some words in there. Jessica meets Duke is given a mystical dagger, which she can use to permanently kill Jason. There is no mention of a mystical dagger, but in the full franchise, the previous eight films, there's been no mention of his mystical ability to actually change and possess bodies. Uh, there's been no talk about his bloodline. There's actually a, a slight implication that his mom and him are the only two of these people, of this family, and so there is no bloodline to speak of. So the mystical dagger, where does that come from? How does that play into things? Like, is this a religious thing? Uh, is this a dagger made by uh, another family that is, you know, supposed to, uh, by definition, save the world from Jason? nothing it's just like oh yeah we need something to kill him with here's a magic dagger a police officer enters the diner where robert possessed transfers his heart into him i kind of want to just watch this movie to see some of these transfers to see what they're doing because i actually i know i've seen this movie but i don't remember duke falls through the floor and jessica is confronted by landis and randy landis is accidentally killed with the dagger which jessica then drops uh dropping stuff yeah Jason, possessing Randy, attempts to be reborn through Stephanie, but Stephen arrives and severs his neck with a machete. Jason's heart, which has grown into a demonic infant, crawls out of Randy's neck. 
Stephen and Jessica pull Duke out of the basement as Jason's heart discovers Diana's body and slithers into her vaginal orifices, vaginal orifice, allowing him to be reborn. This is gotten way off the rails of what Jason is. And this is, again, because the franchise actually at this point is not respecting any of the movies that came before it. And that might be a weird thing to say, but one of the problems with franchises is they always want to expand on what they're doing. And what these guys have done is like a comic book thing and expanded on the power set. They haven't upped the ante in any sort of viable way from what has happened in the previous films. All this mystical stuff has been introduced with no preamble. There's been no hint at it. Okay, last paragraph though. While Stephen and Jessica attempt to retrieve the dagger, Duke distracts Jason and is killed with a bear hug. Classic Jason move. I mean, if you know the guy, you'd be like, huh, classic Voorhees. Jason turns his attention to Jessica before Stephen tackles him. This has failed to... Because if the demonic infant crawls out of Randy's neck and into the girl, uh, and then he's reborn, is he reborn full size? Did he burst out? And I have to watch the movie now, which I really don't want to do. Uh, the two battle while Jessica retrieves the dagger and stabs Jason in the chest just as he's about to kill Steven. As the souls Jason accumulated over time are released, demonic hands burst out of the ground and pull Jason into hell. Steven and Jessica reconcile. Wait a second. You just watched, you just killed a guy, watched a bunch of demons, a bunch of souls be released. I don't even know what that means. Demonic hands proving that hell and demons are real pull Jason into the ground and you're like, whew, we're good? We should get back together? I've been doing romance wrong this whole time. I've just realized. Steven and Jessica reconcile and walk off into the sunrise with their baby. Later, a dog unearths Jason's mask while digging in the dirt. Freddy Krueger's gloved hand bursts out of the dirt and pulls Jason's mask mask into hell while laughing evilly. That is the only bit I remember. So I don't remember when I watched this film. Uh, It came out in 1993. I remember the mask being pulled down and going, oh, that's Freddy's hand. And that was the setup to the 11th film or the 12th film, Freddy versus Jason. But you can see what they've accidentally done is confirmed a lot of things that were never part of the story before. So now the question for the following movies is they take those things into account. According to this, Jason's in hell. So there should be no Jason uh, in, the next fo- in the next movie, Jason X, to be taken into space. The questions we have to ask, uh, was this because of budgetary reasons? I think the answer to that one is yes. They had a surprisingly large budget. So it was, it, it was actually on, again, the Wikipedia page, somewhere between 8 and $11 million. I don't know where that money went because the spaceship is a couple of hallways and a couple of rooms. Uh, the actors are fine. It, it, the biggest surprise for me in the film was that they killed the most attractive woman first and really quickly. I thought she would hang around longer and, and take her shirt off. Uh, that's kind of a standard cliche in these films. There is some weird sex bits. That's not what we're talking about. Did going to space serve the franchise? Absolutely not. There was no benefit. It actually took it down a notch because putting Jason in an enclosed space makes him less scary because he's just walking down hallways. And they did constantly show him just walking straight down hallways. So... What they seem to have done by removing him from the environment he was established in before is they've actually removed a lot of the tension of the films. Was it for budgetary reasons? I guess so. It didn't serve the franchise. It didn't help. It didn't make things better. It didn't make it a better movie. Uh, It seemed cheaper all around, even though they had uh, Jason 9, the one I just, you know, read the summary for, $3 million, made $15 million. Jason wasn't really even in that movie. Uh, then you have another movie, Jason X, eight to eleven million made about sixteen, seventeen million as well. So clearly, the exact same people from before went to see this film. Uh, so you went from having five times profit to a very slim profit margin uh, for a Universal box office. So I think the reason they made this movie is because they actually had, as I said before, run out of ideas. There's no need for this to be a space movie. It's not improved by it being a space movie. Uh, And I think they just threw this together really quickly. Get a lot of jokes. and None of the jokes actually work. If you're going to make a funny horror film, it has to be actually really funny. Like ironically funny or something like that. 
Which takes us to the next franchise that we're going to talk about, and that is Leprechaun. Specifically, Leprechaun 4. So Leprechaun 4 in space. I knew I'd seen it before, but it was very difficult to remember. I think I remembered there was a pee scene, and that was, you know, if that's what I'm remembering, you're actually in a lot of trouble. But I'm going to take a previous point I made about Jason X and just play you two sound clips And then that will, in my mind, actually summarize this whole film. This is from the opening part. This is from the very beginning. They're actually still doing sort of space scenes to establish the setting. Uh, You're still getting names of actors in it. Uh, The only one you're going to recognize is Warwick Davis, who is the actual leprechaun. Uh, He did other things that were actually good. This is the music you will hear during that period. So when I heard that, I already knew we were in trouble because this isn't just the Casio effect. This isn't just the guy holding down for on a Casio for a long time. This is the Casio choral effect. So you have some people going, oh, 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 which was another very set thing from that period. Uh, so I maybe had two Casios. Maybe he had like that sort of stacked deck that Depeche Mode had. I don't know. Uh, but I know you had at least one track where he was playing what he considered the music and then another one where he had the people going, oh, 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 over it. And that meant they couldn't hire singers. Scary all around. As soon as I saw that and the CG again, I would like to pick on the CG, but I don't even remember if it was good or bad. It looks like a bad video game from the nineties. So that might have been high tech at the time. I, I didn't bother to check. I know it wasn't highest effort. This is another spaceship that is primarily Looks like it was filmed in a partial factory. It's basically catwalks, uh, single rooms. The spaceship, weirdly enough, in Leprechaun 4 is probably the best looking spaceship of all these three movies we've talked about so far. But I'm going to play you another clip from the middle of the film to give you another sense of how the music is really important to the success of the soundscape, of the whole atmosphere, of the feeling of your movie. I was tempted to let that play longer because I had to watch the whole scene and uh, the lack of tension again that comes up. The music is not tense. The sound of the effects are not tense. You could probably say maybe it was the settings on my computer, but the guns sound like garbage. They don't sound like guns. It's supposed to be futuristic, so they have this like weird pew sound. This, to me, was where the pew, pew, pew joke maybe originated from. That's really what the guns sound like in this movie. Straight from my notes... It says, I'm done at 1 minute 39. And so that's how far we got into it before I was like, I don't like this movie. You can give credit to the Leprechaun franchise that they were never serious. Uh, It starts out that these guys, they're space marines, they're chasing an alien. So yeah, the Leprechaun would seem like an alien. Is he an alien was a really good question. Like, is that canon? Maybe he's an alien that came to Earth and we, you know, gave him... Uh, those special powers, like we we imbued him as that he's an earthly thing with spiritual powers, and it just turns out he was an alien. That would actually would have been an interesting thing to explore in the film. They didn't. At 13 minutes, he has a, a mini lightsaber. So again, that shows the level of thought uh, they were putting into the jokes. That was probably the best joke of the whole thing, and it's not even much of a joke. This movie does have the most 90s collection of actors I've ever seen. So if you want to know what the 90s was like, maybe you're younger and you actually didn't really experience the 90s like I did, just go look at the actors and think these were the people who just lived in the world all the time. And then you can understand why the 90s were so bad. People who like the 90s, they're not remembering the real 90s. They're not seeing these people because I saw those people all the time. I did take a moment and think that 
maybe I'm being unfair and I needed to watch the previous entries because I know I'd watch the first one. I knew, actually, I remembered from the first movie, it had Jennifer Aniston in it. This was, I think, her first role. And what they did was they chased her and they kept the camera at butt level. So for an extended period, you were just looking at Jennifer Aniston's butt as she ran. Uh, I was age appropriate for that to be funny. Uh, I wasn't titillated, I think, like they were maybe hoping for. But I did think it was funny that they were doing it from the leprechaun's perspective and you were just chasing this girl's butt. But again, right away, I was thinking there's got to be a set of rules here governing the ability to beat or defeat the leprechaun because he's using magic. A lot of times he just sort of does something. There's no reason for it. It just happens. And that takes away a lot of the tension because it means everything is available in some way. So I went back and read the summaries. I didn't watch the movies. The leprechaun can be trapped with a four-leaf clover. So in the first movie, they trap him in, or they trap him in a well, but they have to put a four-leaf clover on it, uh, and that way he won't be able to escape. In Leprechaun Two, he's trying to get a bride, uh, and it turns out that cast iron is his weakness. So it wasn't the four-leaf clover that traps him; it's actually cast iron, and he can't in. And the thing they do in that film is you can't be killed if you have the leprechaun's gold with you. So in all the movies, there is like an element of the leprechaun's gold. If you have that on your person, according to Leprechaun 2, you can't die, at least not die from the leprechaun. So he stabs a guy and the guy just, I don't know if he heals again. I didn't watch the movie. I couldn't bear to go back and do it again. So then we get the movies where the leprechaun goes to the hood. So uh, he goes to the ghetto before and after the space movie. And those are supposed to be the pinnacle of the leprechaun films. So the space one is actually the, the misstep where it was better when he was in the hood. And I believe in one, he becomes a music producer. Uh, and he smokes four-leaf clovers. And that's his version of marijuana. Or it's marijuana with four-leaf clovers in it becomes toxic. What I'm trying to say is I'm not going to get too deep into this. Even though I had to watch the full 90-minute movie, I feel like I should talk at you for 90 minutes straight so you have to suffer. But it's a complete mess. It has no structure. Uh, going to space, it was conceptually interesting only because there was now the possibility that the leprechaun was actually an alien. But they didn't explore that as an option in any real way. Uh, they introduce alien species. There's a, a woman, she's a princess from another planet and her blood can heal people really fast. They do. They have a guy with a really bad German accent, which I was going to make fun of because I did an episode where I did my happy German accent that I do with my friend when we play video games. Uh, but I think, I think that's enough. I think it's enough. I don't think it deserves more attention than this because it fails on every part. Was it for budgetary reasons? Honestly, all these movies have been really cheap. So I don't want to really say that's the reason. Uh, but I think they were doing the two rooms in a hallway kind of thing. They did put some effort into the sort of sets of the spaceship. So I got to give them some credit for that because the sets looked better than the other sets in the other movies. Did this expand the franchise? There was a possibility that it would. Uh, the alien wearing the traditional leprechaun outfit would have been a bit of a misnomer. It would have been a little weird, but you could have probably figured that out. You could have just changed his clothes. I don't know. There is one more movie that I was going to talk about, but I wasn't able to get a copy uh, in Japan. And it was Dracula 3000. So it's not a franchise, but it's the Dracula mythos. Uh, he is in space. It's like a cargo situation. Captain Von Helsing, which was actually the guy from... Oh, what's the name of the movie? Starship Troopers. Uh, he's in it, and Coolio's in it. So, Casper Van Dien, I actually thought he was amazing in Starship Troopers. And I was really surprised his career didn't really seem to go much of anywhere after that, comparatively speaking. He seemed like he should have gone up, uh, and he didn't. Coolio, what's he doing here? Does he add anything to it? No. This, I remember they fly the spaceship into the sun. And I think someone has sex with a robot. Having said that, I now have to look up the Wikipedia. I know I actually saw this movie. 
And so I remember the end, and it's actually been recorded as some of the worst endings to a film ever. As the Demeter, that's the spaceship, draws closer towards one of the binary stars, Humvee and Aurora, so these aren't G.I. Joe characters, that's the name of the characters in the film, confess to each other that neither knows how to pilot the ship. And this is goofy. He's like, well, I don't know how to fly a ship. Because there's supposed to be like a chance where if someone could actually fly the ship, they could save themselves. But they don't know how. Knowing they are about to die, they take comfort in the fact that Orlok's plan to return to Earth has been foiled. So the whole point is this guy, this, this vampire in space, wanted to get back to Earth where he could start, you know, doing what vampires do. Aurora reveals that she is programmed for sexual pleasure and is implied that the two spend their final moments having sex. That is a romantic idea. Uh, the problem is that you would have to have sex before all the pain sits in. So she's a robot. He's still a human being. So she's basically saying, look, I can at least, you know, help you get off once before you die. There are some real world questions and problems that go into that because in that situation, I actually think the tension might make it so that it's difficult to perform on the man's side. But maybe she's a robot. I don't know. It's just, it's a weird way to end a movie. The clip is on YouTube. Like, you can actually find just the ending of Dracula 3000 because the ending is considered so bad. Everyone dies. Just like all these franchises should, they all die. Now, here's the thing. The conclusion to this is if you are somehow found to be at the helm of a movie franchise, like a Friday the 13th, uh, Leprechaun, whatever, and you are trying to come up with that plot, probably there's a time frame. There's probably a deadline that's actually not very long. So you're not going to write a great movie. Taking it to space is not a bad idea. That's actually not what I've been trying to imply this whole time, even though it might sound that way. It's just the execution of most of these have been bad ideas. What you need to do is figure out what makes that character compelling. Does taking that character out of their environment and into a new environment improve that? Have you found the rules and woven them into your mythology? Because a lot of these movies fall apart because they lose tension, because a lot of random things happen for no reason, and there is no sense of satisfaction at having watched the film. I love space movies. I love movies that happen in space. But there has to be a reason for them to be in space, and that's maybe the first thing you have to figure out. Just taking a horror monster and putting them in space isn't enough. <laughs>